Um, I wonder if you can relate to this idea, this kind of fear that we have. It's the fear of being caught empty-handed in life. What do I mean by that? it's, It's the kind of thing I think that a lot of us worry about somewhere in the background. We worry about being found out as someone who doesn't have what we're expected to have, who hasn't made the grade, who hasn't lived up to the unspoken expectations of the society, the group of people in which we move. Now that can be something really obvious, like if you've got teenage kids, not having the right phone at school can be (laughs) the thing that they don't want to get caught empty-handed with. It might be more subtle. Um, At work, you might be in a work situation where you worry that one day people will figure out that you don't actually know as much as they think that you know about the job that you're doing. There are other situations as well, that fear of being caught empty-handed. In a lot of cultures, especially from the East, if you get invited to someone's place uh, to visit for a meal or something like that, no matter what your host says, you know the expectation is there that you will come bearing a gift. It would be wrong to turn up empty-handed. It would be an insult to arrive without a gift. But that's not just a Korean or Chinese or Middle Eastern kind of thing. That actually exists within the Aussie culture as well. Um, Otherwise, Cadbury would never have made the ad that they made five years ago that told us that a box of favourites is what you're to bring when you're told not to bring a thing. Uh, People like me could relate to that because I'm going, yeah, yeah. Uh, I get invited and people say, don't bring something, and Fiona's telling me, of course we have to bring something, and I'm thinking, Did they, but didn't they say you don't have to? There exists this fear of getting caught empty-handed, and not just when you get invited to the barbecue, across all of life. We're scared of people finding us out, of discovering that we don't actually have anything of great value to contribute Now, as we travel along the road to Jerusalem with Jesus, as we watch and listen and follow him, as he and his disciples head towards the capital city where we're going to see the climax of Mark's gospel, as we follow on the road to Jerusalem, it's interesting that this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Our fear of being caught empty-handed and how we relate to God and what life in the kingdom is like, especially. So let's have a look. I hope you've got your Bibles there. I know we read them before the break. We're in Mark chapter 10. But I want to take you back to where we were last week, uh, just to give you a bit of orientation. Uh, In your growth groups, you'll get a chance to go through and look at some of the sections in chapter 9. Right now, though, I just want you to see the movement, the pattern that's here. So back in chapter 8, last week when Byrne was preaching, we saw Peter is starting to see things more clearly about who Jesus is. Uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He's the Christ. And Jesus says, well, that's true, and here's what's going to happen. I must be killed. He's going to be killed. So after all this has happened, Jesus and his followers hit the road again. They've been up north Uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, as you cast your eye through chapter 9, you'll see the town names come up. If you look at that on a map, they're moving south, down past Galilee, through into Judea, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 32, is explicit about that. 
And as we follow them on this journey, as they get closer to Jerusalem, we're just going to pay attention to three episodes that happen along the way. Three moments when Jesus shows us something crucial uh, when it comes to this thing that's often there in the back of our minds that we have to contribute something. One of the great sins of our culture is to get caught empty-handed. So, episode one. Uh, This starts in chapter 10, verse 13, where the passage was read from. So, chapter 10, verse 13, people were bringing their little children to Jesus to have him touch them. You can imagine the scene. You know, they're stopped by the side of the road having a break. People have seen that Jesus is here. Quick, bring the kids, bring the kids. How do the disciples respond? It's not with smiles. It says the disciples rebuked them. Stop what you're doing. Get your kids out of here. Just leave us alone. What's going on for the disciples? Why are they they talking like that? Well, it's probably because in their context, they're looking at the kids and they're thinking the children are not at all significant. Uh, Little children have got no clout, no influence. From their point of view... These kids are not worth the Messiah's time. In the social hierarchy of their culture, little children haven't really got anything to offer. And this person that we're talking about, this Jesus, he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And he's headed to Jerusalem. And in the disciples' mind, if he's the Messiah and he's headed to Jerusalem, it can only mean one thing. He's going there to become the king, to become the ruler that they've been looking forward to. He, therefore, has got much more important things to do than spend time with little kids. There are more important people for him to see than these snotty-nosed, insignificant, burpy, wriggling creatures. But that's not how Jesus responds. He doesn't think the children are insignificant. In fact, Mark says when he sees the disciples rebuking people, Jesus himself is indignant. He is not at all happy with what they're doing. And he says to them, hey, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's classic Jesus, isn't it? That little scene there. Vintage Jesus. Um, Not saying that because here is a picture of Jesus being nice to little children, and that's classic Jesus, you know. He's nicer than the nice people. No, I'm saying this is classic Jesus because it's Jesus preaching the message he's been preaching from the beginning. He's telling people to repent, to turn around and change their direction. He's saying to his disciples, Whoa, guys, you have got to stop operating on this messed up hierarchy where some people are higher up the ladder and other people are lower down and you spend time with the important people at the top. No, 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 no. That pecking order, it's time to throw that out the window. That is not how things operate in the kingdom of God. That is not how things operate in the kingdom of God. Maybe Jesus isn't only talking to the disciples gathered around him. Maybe he's also talking to followers like you and me. Because maybe we need to hear this because maybe we have been so influenced by what our society says about who is important and who is worth our time 
Maybe we're so shaped by the pecking order in our own community that that is one of the things that drives us to be afraid of getting caught empty-handed. Do you see what I'm getting at? We have this hierarchy and the people higher up than us, we want to make sure that we don't disappoint them. We want to be recognised by them. We want to be considered worthwhile and significant by them. And so as a result of that, we worry about whether we're doing enough to be noticed by them, whether we've got enough, whether we've got the right kind of enough, the right brand, the right suburb. Our kids are in the right schools. If those people are smart people, we worry about whether we're going to be smart enough for them. If they're funny people, are we going to be funny enough are we going to be able to deliver on what's expected to get recognised? That's the way that kind of hierarchy can affect us. And so maybe Jesus, not maybe, I think definitely Jesus is talking not just to his disciples back then, but also to us today. Because we have something we need to repent of as well. We need to do a U-turn. We need to turn around and change the orientation of our lives and the way in which we see people if we're going to be members of the kingdom of God. We've got to see people differently. So what's it look like to chuck that pecking order out the window and grow as followers of Jesus? Well, we get first clue in verse 15. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who won't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What's that mean? What's it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Does it mean you have to be innocent and guileless? Well, no, I think Jesus is talking more about the idea of dependence here. It means that we come into the kingdom empty-handed. We have nothing to bring. When little children are born, they come into the world without anything, do they? They have achieved nothing earned nothing, contributed nothing. They're totally dependent. Somebody else has to do everything for them. And Jesus says, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. That is the only way. There is no other way to enter the kingdom of God except to come like a little child to recognize that you have nothing to bring and you're completely dependent on what God has done for you. We need to come empty-handed, which, of course, is what a lot of the time we're living in fear of. Now, the danger for us, here's the danger for someone like me, anyway. That's something we have to be aware of. The danger is that we will interpret what Jesus says about coming totally dependent, empty-handed, We'll interpret that the same way we do when somebody says to us, oh, come over to our place and don't bring a thing. And we think to ourselves, well, they don't really mean don't bring a thing, do they? I really probably should bring something. And so what we do is we we think, if I come to God completely empty-handed, that makes me very vulnerable. What if God doesn't like what he sees? So we try to smuggle something in. We say, God, thank you for sending Jesus. And here are my good works for you. Here are the things that I've given up for you. Just to make sure that that I'm okay for you. But Jesus is serious. He says, 
like a little child. The only way to come is to come completely dependent. And that's illustrated in the second episode as we go along this journey to Jerusalem. So verse 17, second episode. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up, fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a clue, with what we've just read, there's a clue that there's going to be something wrong with this guy, even in his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I need to bring in my hands if I'm going to have eternal life? And Jesus picks that up. He drops his own little clue in the way he starts to answer him, saying, listen, mate, interesting question. Just so you're clear on this, though, there is nobody who's really good, no one who's good enough or done enough except God alone. You've got that, right? And then he points this man in the direction of the commandments, to which the man answers, Teacher, all these I've kept, all of them, since I was a little boy. See what he's saying? Look at what I'm bringing in my hands. Look at what I've done for you. How hard I've worked. But he's also saying to Jesus, but I want to be sure, and I know you're the guy who's got the answer, Is there perhaps something that I might have missed out on? Is there anything else I need to do to inherit eternal life? Have a look down at what it says next. Jesus looks at him and loves him. Don't miss that little bit there. And out of love, he says for him, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Out of love, out of love for this man, Jesus says, well, it's really the same as anyone who will not enter the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, isn't it? You have to come hands empty. He's challenging this man, calling on him to repent from trusting in his own good works and believe the good news to turn away from everything he's assumed about God's kingdom and to believe the good news that you come in empty-handed, dependent on God. Um, Preacher, author Tim Keller sums this little exchange up like this. He says that Jesus is saying to the man at this point, listen, you've put your faith and your trust in your wealth and your accomplishments, but right now God is your boss, but God is not your saviour. And here's how I can say it. I want you to imagine life without money. God is your boss, not your saviour. You're trusting in your money to be your saviour. So verse 22, at this the man's face fell and he went away sad, literally grieving because he had great wealth. He had something he thought he could trust in. The idea of giving up his money broke this man's heart. That's what verse 22 is telling us. Because for this man, money was to him what the father was to Jesus. Money was for this man the thing he was counting on. And from his point of view, if he couldn't have his money, then he was in danger. This man's not alone. We are very similar in a lot of ways. 
His culture had told him certain things about what he needed to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our culture is the same. Whether we come from a traditional culture with emphasis on family and community or whether we're from the individualistic West, we're taught these values, these things that we're encouraged to count on and depend on as our security and our safety. And all of those things make it hard for us to actually come empty-handed to enter the kingdom of God. Harder than trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle, is the way Jesus puts it. It might not be money, like the rich man in the story, but all of us have things that we're counting on in life. Things that we struggle to let go of. Things that it seems wrong of us to say, I'm not going to count on that and I'm going to bet everything on God. See, I think Tim Keller's right. Most of us would rather have God as our boss. We'd rather live with God as the one who tells us what we need to do and we will do our best to measure up to what he demands of us. But actually, we want to be the ones who work and save ourselves. Jesus is saying in this passage, all through this journey to Jerusalem, turn around, repent. It's not how it works. He calls us to change our upside-down way of thinking, our do-it-yourself way of thinking, and to go right way up to the kingdom of God way of thinking, which is, verse 31, the first will be last and the last first. We've got to change the way we think about all kinds of things. And that first, last, last first, that's the theme of uh, the third episode, which we're about to come to. But I just want you to look before we get there to help make sense of this third episode in verses 28 to 30. We've got Peter and Andrew and James and John and the other disciples in Jesus' close inner circle. We have learnt from the beginning of Mark's gospel, these are people who've given up everything. They've walked out on their business. They've walked out on on everything they have in order to follow Jesus. They've come to him empty-handed, and that's great, but they're just like us, and there's a certain level of anxiety about what they've done. They haven't quite got it yet, and that's what we're seeing played out in the third episode. So, they're continuing on the road to Jerusalem in our third episode, James and John, a couple of the brothers who are disciples, they come to Jesus with a request saying, let one of us sit on your right and one on your left when you're in your glory. Now remember, they've left behind all this stuff, family, possessions. Now they're trying to fill their hands up with something else because it feels hard to be empty-handed and just count on God. So they want to grab hold of honour and status in this new kingdom they hope Jesus is going to establish when they get to Jerusalem. Jesus says, guys, that is just a sign that you are still thinking in terms of the the culture all around us, in the culture of the, the Gentiles, the rulers, the people in authority, they lord it over them and exercise authority. But that's not the case for us in the kingdom of God, certainly not for you. Instead, any of you who wants to become great must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And they're not just words for Jesus. Go on to verse 45. He applies it to himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. See, the one who Jesus has just spoken about as first being last, here he is, the one who is first, the Messiah, the one who's the king in the kingdom, he is going to become the last, the slave of all. And against the culture of his time and what was expected, instead of climbing the ladder to gain authority as king, Jesus comes down from heaven, humbles himself, gives up everything and goes to the cross where he gives up his life as a ransom for others, for, for you and for me and for anyone who will come to him empty-handed. That pattern, that pattern which is the pattern of the kingdom, just goes against so much of what's reinforced to us in our society that you can't really live empty-handed, that you can't succeed that way. You have to contribute something. You have to prove your worth somehow. The thing about the gospel, though, is that you don't enter it by climbing the ladder, by grasping at things. The thing that's such good news about God's kingdom is that we don't have to bring anything. We just depend on what Jesus has done for us. The Son of Man giving his life as a ransom. We don't go to God saying, look at me and look at the things that I've done for you. It's not even about us saying, look God at the stuff that I've given up for you. You owe me, don't you? It's not look at me and what I've done. It's look at Jesus and what he's done for us. And as we get that, as we start to feed that into just ordinary everyday living, it's incredibly liberating. So I want to leave you with a bit of mathematics uh, because I'm famous as being great up to about year six in maths. Uh, I want to leave you with some mathematics to help you remember it. Here is an equation that's pretty easy to remember, harder to do. It goes like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's not something that you can change around. You can achieve all kinds of things, but if you don't have Jesus, if you take Jesus away from everything, you're left with nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's an incredibly freeing one. I want to tell you about Michelle, who learned that lesson a very difficult way. Michelle grew up on the east coast of the United States, um, and for around about 10 years of her life, she was heavily involved in the drug culture, got involved in a gang, turned 30, and she becomes a Christian, uh, couldn't believe that God loved her, and her gang friends couldn't believe that she'd become a Christian. So she decides she needs to get away from the gang. She's going to make a new start and move to New York City. So she packs up everything, schedules a removal van to come and pick up her stuff from her house, while she drives on ahead the day before in her car to get ready to receive the van in New York. So the next day comes and there's no van and she waits and she waits some more and there's still no van. It never turns up. So she rings the removal company to find out what happened and they say, well, you phoned us yesterday morning. You cancelled the whole job. No. You know what happened? Her former friends had phoned the removal company, pretended to be her, cancelled the job, but it's worse than that. They then hired their own truck 
turned up outside the house, went to the neighbour, got the key, loaded all of her possessions into the truck and drove away. They stole everything, the whole lot. Michelle says even though she would never wish that on anybody, it was the best thing to ever happen to her. Why does she say that? Well, because of that event, she suddenly had nothing in her hands and nothing to cling on to apart from Jesus Christ. And that changed her. Changed the way that she understood life, changed uh, for her what mattered most and the things that she gave her time to. See, she got to discover the truth of that equation, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And when you discover that, it sets you free. It sets you free to serve others and love others without keeping score. It sets you free to give generously to others of your possessions, of your money, without worrying if you're going to miss out when you get to your retirement or if people are going to get ahead of you. It sets you free to be able to disagree with people without needing to win and prove yourself. Because who you are, if you're in the kingdom of God, who you are is not defined by whether or not you win. And it's not defined by how much money you have when you retire. And it's certainly not defined by making sure you receive back from others just as much as you give to them. Who you are in the kingdom of God is defined by the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for you. That's who you are. You're the one for whom the Son of Man gave his life as a ransom. And having that, that beats anything else. So when you see that, when you understand it, when you really get that into the everyday bits of your life, that you don't need to bring anything to the table. You don't need to prove anything to God in order to convince him to love you. That sets you free to devote your life to something bigger and more majestic than the trivial comforts and the never quite enough securities that we chase after to make us feel safe. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's kind of what Jesus is saying when he says, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And when he says that, he's calling us to repentance, isn't he? To turn around, to take our eyes off those other things that we're depending on and to go hard after the glories of the kingdom of God. Because that's where the treasure is. That is where the power of God is at work, changing and transforming lives. God is at work in ways that are only possible through his formidable grace when we trust in him like that. So let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, we thank you that you're not measuring us on our performance, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And thank you that that remains true today and tomorrow and the next day. And that it's when we're like little children entering the kingdom 
that we know the joy of your provision and the freedom that that gives us. Help us, Lord God, to truly believe and live as though Jesus plus nothing equals everything so that we might be set free to love and give and be generous with our lives without living in fear that we're going to show up empty-handed and get caught out. Help us to hold on to the great treasure. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.